not much of a surprise, but Kamala Harris, uh, the uh, junior senator from California who has been in office for two years. So uh, like uh, former President Barack Obama, uh, she has decided to run for president uh, in the Senate, being in the Senate only for two years. I don't particularly have a, a huge issue with somebody running for president that doesn't have a ton of elected experience, uh, but I do do have an issue with Kamala Harris. And sorry, sorry, I know you're not allowed in this uh, society to not before a, a woman who's also African-American. I know it is literally not allowed. It's blasphemy to critique Kamala Harris, it's racist, it's sexist, it's blasphemy, it's it's one of the it's one of the Ten Commandments not to do it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Because frankly, honestly, you could just tell right away uh, what Kamala Harris is about. So uh, if you haven't if you haven't seen it, here is Kamala Harris's uh, announcement video. Uh, it is oh god, I don't even know what to say about this, but here we go. Truth justice, decency, equality, freedom, democracy. These aren't just words. They're the values we as Americans cherish, and they're all on the line now. The future of our country depends on you and millions of others lifting our voices to fight for our American values. That's why I'm running for president of the United States. I'm running to lift those voices, to bring our voices together, so please join me in Oakland on Sunday, January 27th, and go to KamalaHarris.org to join our campaign. Let's do this together. Let's claim our future for ourselves, for our children, and for our country. I'll see you in Oakland. I got to give it to her. You know, the, the colors were very bold. The music was very, you know, funky and fun. Uh, it, it was, you know, got me very excited, let me tell you. Uh, you know, nothing really in there about what we should do as president or anything other than platitudes. Uh, kind of reminded me of this uh, other candidate. Uh, her name was Hillary Clinton, you know, Stronger Together. And really what you saw out of Kamala Harris in that video is what the consultants tell uh candidates uh, from Kamala, Kamala Harris to Beto O'Rourke to, to these folks is, you know, buzzwords, throw out some buzzwords. So democracy, humanity, uh, you know, equality, all, all these things. Uh, throw out some, you know, nice buzzwords, uh, bright colors, form a narrative, um, you know, for our future, for our children. Actually, apparently her campaign slogan is uh, for the people, which is which is interesting. So for the people, Kamala Kamala Harris. Um, well, it, it that video was kind of void of most, uh, you know, anything called policy. So let's see if the piece, uh, you know, she wrote a piece on on Medium. Uh, Kamala Harris, I'm running for president. She writes, decency, justice, truth, equality. Freedom, democracy. Oh my God, I love it. I love these buzzwords. I'm so inspired. I'm so inspired. I'm so excited. 
and I just can't hide it. These aren't just words. They're the values we as Americans cherish. Right now, they're all on the line. Oh, so obviously we see she's pitting this as suddenly America has become awful uh, under Trump. It was it was just dandy before Trump. We face the greatest crisis of leadership we've seen in our lifetimes, and powerful voices are filling the void, sowing hate and division among us. So I guess uh, she's, without saying it, uh, basically saying right now is the greatest crisis of leadership, not, you know, cowboy George W. Bush and Darth Vader, Dick Cheney, who invaded a a country on false pretenses and 4,000 American soldiers died. Uh, uh, I mean, the estimates are all over the place, but hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died or wounded, but it's Trump. Uh, He's the worst. And don't get me wrong, Trump is terrible, but we already see what she's doing with uh, this this phrasing and this strategy and this messaging. We're at an unprecedented, unprecedented pinnacle because of Trump. We've witnessed an administration that aligns itself with dictators and refers to white supremacists as very fine people. They've torn babies from their mother's arms and put children's in children in cages. So dare I, dare I, you know, I'm going to be attacked. Jordan, stop with the whataboutism. Stop with the whataboutism. But, you know, Trump's not exactly the first American president to align himself with dictators. Dare I bring up? Uh, President Barack Obama meeting with King, the King of Jordan, uh, Barack Obama meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, or the United States uh, in gross efforts at regime change, basically toppling democratic, democratically elected leaders to insert our chosen dictator who's a little bit more friendly to our business interests. So Kamala Harris, you gotta look up your history. <gasps> Sorry, I know that's racist and sexist of me to say, but you gotta look up your history. Because President Trump, not the first one to throw his arms around uh, dictators. Uh, they've slashed taxes for corporations and the wealthiest among us, placing the burden on the middle class. They've actively fought against efforts to combat climate change. Time and again, they've sabotaged our country's health care. And they've attacked our free and independent press at every turn. We know America is better than this, but it's on us to build it. We're going to have to fight for it. Woo! This is our fight song. Take back my life song. I'm ready to take on that fight alongside you. That's why today I am proud to announce that I'm running for president of the United States. I want to be clear, ours will not be a campaign against our current president. It will be a campaign for the very future of our country, for the people. Uh, we're a couple paragraphs in, not one mention of policy, but definitely a lot of mention of buzzwords and consultant uh, drivel, because consultants are putting these words in her mouth. Together, we will fight for a country with strong public schools in every zip code, a country where one job is enough to pay the bills, a country with full universal health care for every single American. Oh, I've heard this before. Together, we will fight for our country. We're getting a college education doesn't mean taking on a lifetime of debt. We're middle class and working families are prioritized with tax breaks, 
not corporations are the wealthiest 1%, where every single person can retire with dignity, where every single person can breathe clean air and drink clean water, where black women aren't three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, a country where for-profit prison businesses, a billion-dollar industry, are a thing of the past. That's interesting, because her record as California Attorney General wasn't exactly so on the side of justice, but we'll get to that. We're going to fight for an America where all our civil rights are respected. We're going to seek truth and speak truth. That's my promise to you. Ours is a fight born of optimism, of the promise of what our country can become if we unite behind a common cause. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to earn your vote and most importantly, your trust. And our, our campaign will not take a dime from corporate PACs who have gamed our political system. Help us build the foundation for a movement that will win in November 2020 and beyond by donating $10 or more today. Oh, Kamala. So, Kamala Harris uh, announces her run for presidency. Doesn't particularly say much of anything on, on what she would do as president. Why is she qualified to be president? Why is she different than, say, Bernie Sanders or anybody else? But, you know, a lot of words. A lot of words. A lot of words. A lot of words. Big words. Big words. So uh, it was interesting when she said I wasn't going to take any corporate PAC money and she said we're going to do it for the people and all that. You know what I thought of? The first thing I thought of was, you know, her meeting with Hillary Clinton's top donors in the Hamptons uh, six months after she became a senator. I know, I know, it's racist and sexist for me to point this out, but I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, maybe they were sitting, uh, drinking spiked tea, uh, singing Kumbaya and talking about Medicare for all and doing it for the people in the Hamptons. Uh, here is a an article for you. After propping her up as the Democratic Party's resistance hero, the Democratic establishment, including Clinton donors and staffers, are lining up behind the idea of Senator Kamala Harris running for president in 2020. Earlier this month, Harris met with several top Clinton donors in the Hamptons and attended a luncheon hosted by for her by Liz Robbins, one of Hillary Clinton's top lobbyist bundlers. This weekend, Harris returned to the Hamptons for more meet and greets with more greet, meet and greet with top greet meet and greets with top Clinton donors. This time, she met with Harvey Weinstein, Citigroup banker Ray McGuire, and former UN ambassador Susan Rice. In fairness, I'm assuming she didn't know you know Harvey Weinstein was a menace and a horrific male who's done unspeakable things to women. But pretty sure she knows that Citigroup is horrific too. But she met with Citigroup banker Ray McGuire and a bunch of Hillary Clinton's uh, inner circle. The continued meetings and lavish galas signal that Democratic elites are rallying behind Harris as she positions herself to run for president in 2020. An anonymous Democratic donor told The Hill that Harris is, quote, absolutely going to run in 2020. Another source told Page Six she's on overdrive. It's not just about the money. That's the easy part for her. She wants to meet the influential. In addition to courting donors, Harris has hired several former Clinton staffers. Hillary for America Regional Director Sergio Gonzalez joined Harris. Lily Adams, who served as the DNC's Deputy Communications Director before joining the Clinton campaign in Iowa in 2015, now serves as Harris's Communications Director. That's interesting because Lily Adams was serving as the DNC's Deputy Communications Director at this very same time that the DNC in 2015... 2015, was writing documents preparing for Hillary Clinton as the general election nominee. So she was a part of that rigging early on in 2015. 
she is uh, now she is Kamala Harris's, I believe, communications director or press secretary. One of those. Harris's deputy press secretary, Kate Walters, also worked for the Clinton campaign. Harris's hiring indicates she hopes to stack her staff with people who have experience working on presidential campaigns. Uh, I don't know if it's experience working on presidential campaigns as much as experience being corrupt and being friendly to the corrupt. So I hate to be unfair. I hate to be unfair. But, you know, actions speak louder than flowery videos, you know, with buzzwords. So you're a senator for six months and you're meeting in the Hamptons with Hillary Clinton's top donors, with Hillary Clinton's former campaign staffers, with executives from Citigroup. It's almost like Human beings like Kamala Harris, and by the way, it's not just Kamala Harris, it's Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, it's all of them. It's almost like the consultants and the donors and uh, the party elites basically just get together with these people, and maybe these people at one point have, you know, genuine views, maybe at one point they have genuine uh, principles, but it's almost like they put them in a, they put them in a machine they, you know, kind of pop them around. It's like they mold them. It's like clay, you know? It's like they mold them and it's like clay. And they basically, you know, make them whatever the donors and consultants want them to be. They're molded into images. Barack Obama, hope and change. Kamala Harris, for the people. Kirsten Gillibrand, I'm going to fight as hard for you as I would my own children. And all of this is packaged like a wonderful, wonderful array of donuts. I say that because I had a lovely, lovely donut this morning from Krispy Kremes. I know it's bad. And they're all packaged. They're all packaged uh, to basically say a lot of words that sound so democratic, that sound so forward thinking, that sound so hopeful, that sound so amazing, and it's going to lift the skies and part the oceans. And underneath is the same old fucking nothing. The same old fucking servitude to the global oligarchy and the United Corporations of America. Kamala Harris. Let's take a look. Uh, it seems her, her go-tos uh, as far as policy, uh, she is proposing a $2.8 trillion middle class tax cut called the LIFT Act. She's proposing $76 billion in tax credits for low-income renters. She's proposing a bill to encourage states to reduce cash bail, uh, election security, whatever that means, reduce racial disparity in childbirth deaths, and Medicare for all. Sounds lovely. All of it sounds lovely. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more on the uh, Policy Act, on the LIFT Act. The latest volley in the, com this is from Vox, the latest volley in the competition is the Lift the Middle Class Act from Harris. As the Atlantic's Annie Lowry explains, the bill would offer a sizable cash payment to most middle class households. Single people would get $250 per month or $3,000 a year. Married couples would get $500 per month or $6,000 a year. And it would phase out for singles without kids making 50000 or more, and for married couples or single people with kids making 100000 or more. It costs about $200 billion in the first year, or $2 trillion over 10, roughly in the range of the price tag for the 2017 tax cuts. So, let me be fair about this, okay? It's not a bad idea what she's proposing. 
an extra $3,000 for individuals a year is not a bad idea. An extra $6,000 for a married couple is not a bad idea. So I'm not going to say these are not helpful. Of course, on the surface, if you can get $3,000, an extra $3,000, not corporate people getting $3,000, but working people getting an extra $3,000, that is a good thing. $6,000 for a married couple is a good thing. But the problem is, that is working around the edges. We are in a time with unprecedented, unprecedented income inequality. And it's not uh, just income inequality, it is income theft. uh, That I want to ask you about. You said there's plenty of money in the world, there's plenty of money in the city, it's just in the wrong hands. That's a quote. That is a quote. Who decides whose hands are the right hands and whose hands are the wrong hands? Look at what's happening in my city. Look what's translated from Jake Tapper. Who dis- who are you to decide if the money belongs in my six million six six thousand dollar suit? Because obviously it's a personal affront to Jake Tapper. We continue. What's happening all over the country? Millions upon millions of people who literally can barely make ends meet. Working people who are working one job, two jobs working harder than ever, longer hours than ever. Uh, The pace of our lives gets tougher and tougher and people get less and less back. Why? Because the 1% really has rigged the system, including the recent tax law that gave a huge windfall to the corporations and the wealthy. This is systematic. I said in the speech, this has been an agenda uh, from Reagan's administration right on through to Trump's to take money from working people and give it to the 1%. So when I say there's plenty of money in this country, it's just in the wrong hands. It means to say we need policies that give back to working people, like guaranteeing health care for all. So, But what's interesting about the argument, which I think struck a lot of people, is you're not talking about fairness. You're saying these people have money and it's wrong that they have money, not they have money, they live exorbitant or wealthy, comfortable lifestyles, and therefore they could give a little bit more to help this, these people. You're saying it's wrong that they have money. And who decides whether it's wrong? That's my question. It's clear to me why it's wrong, because government policies gave the 1% every conceivable leg up. This was not by accident. As I said, this was an agenda. It was systematic. You go back decades, you go back even to the time of Dwight Eisenhower, Uh, We had some of the highest tax rates on the wealthy that this country ever saw. We had a very prosperous country. We had that prosperity pretty well shared among different people, including working people in this country. We had investments in infrastructure, the kinds of things that grew the economy for everyone. Over the years, since Ronald Reagan, there was a systematic agenda to take that money and get it more and more in the hands of the few. That was through tax policy, but a lot of other policies Mm -hmm. as well. This was not an accident. Democrats and progressives need to be blunt about this. And people will appreciate that bluntness when we say, for example, guarantee health care for everyone. That's a doable thing. The money is there. When we say, which I announced this week as well, we're going to guarantee that everyone has a right to two weeks of paid time off, paid personal days. Mm-hmm. So, so they can live their lives better. The money you is You get there. the point. You get the point of what I'm talking about here. You got... Bill de Blasio is making a better argument, frankly, than Kamala Harris in her presidential announcement. We don't need tax credits. Tax credits are nice, but that's not an economic policy. That's not going to unrig a a rigged system that is for oligarchy. That is not going to radically, radically lift communities like Detroit, like Cleveland, 
like Milwaukee, like Flint, like Baltimore, like St. Louis, all of these all of these deindustrialized uh, cities and towns all over the Midwest, parts of the South that have had their jobs sent to China and Mexico, three an extra three thousand dollars a year, an extra six thousand dollars a year for a married couple, is not that's changing the side dish of the meal. It's not changing the main meal, and the main meal is a legalized auction. The main meal is a legalized auction, which is the United States economic system, which is primarily built on greed, legalized bribery, war, and public servants that are not public servants. So Kamala Harris, when you're talking about tax credits and uh, these kinds of things, that's not enough to radically curb what has become worse than the Gilded Age of 1920s. So in one hand, you can't say, oh, well, it's not a bad idea to, to have tax credits for of upwards of $3,000 for individuals or $6,000 for a couple, but that's not enough. Is an extra $3,000 a year going to radically change the game for you? I'm asking you in the audience, if you're an individual or an extra $6,000 a year, is that going to is that going to radically pay for your health care costs that health insurance isn't covering? Is that going to radically help you pay off your student loan debt that is totally rigged against you? Is it going to help you, uh, you know, if you have an emergency crisis, which could cost you $3,000 as an individual? Is it going to pull the veil? Is it going to stop the, the corporate auction that has become our government? No. Because she's not talking about corruption. Why would she be? She's meeting with Hillary Clinton's donors in the Hamptons. She's focused on Donald Trump and calling him the worst thing ever invented. But she is already, she has shown she's in bed with the very Clinton machine and this neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that has only elevated extreme conservatism. You cannot get extreme conservatisms. You, you would not get extreme conservatives like George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Trump without neoliberals there to help them get elected. Because neoliberals are basically a milder form of batshit crazy Republicans. So I'm not saying don't, you know, tax credits aren't a good thing. I'm saying it's not enough. And honestly, based on your record, both as a senator, which frankly, there's not much. She's only been a senator for two years. Based on your record as attorney general of uh, California, I don't have any strong way of knowing if you're going to follow through on any of this stuff, much less propose bolder views. Now, you say you're for Medicare for all. Well, you didn't run for California senator. senator at, for As far as I know, she didn't run on Medicare for all. So you came on board with Medicare for all when it became more popular because of Bernie Sanders. So again, this is the same problem with Hillary Clinton. You could say a lot of things as a candidate. You could say a lot of things as a politician. What are you going to do if elected? Because we need to know that the people that are saying they're going to fight for Medicare for all are actually going to do it. They might act, they might lose if elected. They might not get it through if elected. But we need to know that they're actually going to stand by their principles and not compromise the farm right out of the gate like Barack Obama did. Barack Obama ran for office talking about universal health care, a public option. And then he hatched a right wing 
policy out of the Heritage Foundation. Why? Because during the campaign and right after he was elected, he basically surrounded himself by a bunch of bankers. Hell, if you look at WikiLeaks, Barack Obama's cabinet was chosen by Citigroup. So Barack Obama, which many of us didn't know, was fundraising record amounts from Wall Street while running on hope and change. And by the way, as we've seen from Beto O'Rourke and others, just just saying I'm not going to take corporate PAC money or super PAC money, it doesn't mean you're not going to take the max donations from bank executives. It doesn't mean you're not going to take the max donations from fossil fuel executives. It doesn't mean you're not going to take the max donations from the defense industry executives. And by the way, Bernie Sanders, if we're keeping it real, Bernie Sanders takes money from individuals from the defense industry. So I don't think that's a good thing either. I don't think he should. So you could be against corporate PAC money. Better O'Rourke didn't take corporate PAC money. As I reported right before uh, the Senate election between O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, he was doing fundraisers with fossil fuel lobbyists. He was taking money from fossil fuel executives. So just saying I'm not going to take corporate PAC money is not a universal I'm not corrupt. This piece, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but if you haven't read it, you got to read it. Uh, this piece says a lot about Kamala Harris because it basically tears her to pieces as far as her time as a prosecutor in California and attorney general in California. This was written by um, a law professor and the former director of Loyola Law School uh, Project for the Innocent in Los Angeles. With the growing recognition that prosecutors hold the keys to a fairer criminal justice system, the term progressive prosecutor has almost become trendy. This is how Senator Kamala Harris of California, a likely presidential candidate and a former prosecutor, describes herself. But she's not. Time after time, when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms as a district, district attorney and then the state's attorney general, Ms. Harris opposed them or stayed silent. Most troubling, Ms. Harris fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions that had been secured through official misconduct that included evidence tampering, false testimony, and the suppression of crucial information by prosecutors. Consider her record as San Francisco's district attorney from 2004 to 2011. Ms. Harris was criticized in 2010 for withholding information about a police laboratory technician who had been accused of intentionally sabotaging her work and stealing drugs from the lab. After a memo surfaced showing that Ms. Harris's deputies knew about the technician's wrongdoing and recent conviction, but failed to alert defense lawyers, a judge condemned Ms. Harris's indifference to the systematic violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. Ms. Harris contested the ruling by arguing that the judge, whose husband was a defense attorney and had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosing evidence, had a conflict of interest. So she didn't argue on the merits of that she basically withheld evidence that the defense was entitled to, which is called a Brady violation. She said because the judge's husband was a defense attorney, she has a conflict of interest. Ms. Harris lost. More than 600 cases handled by the corrupt technician were dismissed. Ms. Harris also championed state legislation under which parents whose children were found to be habitually truant in elementary school could be prosecuted despite concerns that it would disproportionately affect low-income people of color. Ms. Harris was similarly regressive as a state's attorney general. When a federal judge in Orange County, Orange County ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional in 2014, 
Miss Harris appealed. In a public statement, she made the bizarre argument that the decision, quote, undermines important protections that our courts provide to defendants. The approximately 740 men and women awaiting execution in California might disagree. In 2014, she declined to take a position on Proposition 47, a ballot initiative voted, approved by voters that reduced certain low-level felonies to misdemeanors. She laughed that year when a reporter asked if she would support the legalization of marijuana for recreational use. Ms. Harris finally reversed course in 2018, long after public opinion had shifted on the topic. Kind of sounds like Hillary Clinton on gay marriage, huh? In 2015, she opposed a bill requiring her office to investigate shootings involving officers, and she refused to support statewide standards regulating the use of body-worn cameras by police officers. For this, she incurred criticism from an array of left-leaning reformers, including Democratic state senators, the ACLU, and San Francisco's elected public defender. The activist Felicia Jones, who had supported Ms. Harris for years, asked, how many more people need to die before she steps in? Worst of all, though, is Mrs. Harris's record in wrongful conviction cases. Consider George Gage, an electrician with no criminal record, who was charged in 99, 1999 with sexually abusing his stepdaughter, who reported the allegations years later. The case largely hinged on the stepdaughter's testimony, and Mr. Gage was convicted. Afterward, the judge discovered that the prosecutor had unlawfully held back potentially exculpatory evidence, including medical records indicating that the stepdaughter had been repeatedly untruthful with law enforcement. Her mother even described her as a, quote, pathological liar who lives her lies. In 2015, when the case reached the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco, Ms. Harris's prosecutors defended the conviction. They pointed out that Mr. Gage, while forced to act as his own lawyer, had not properly raised the legal issue in the lower court as the law required. The appellate judge acknowledges, acknowledged this impediment, impediment and sent the case to medi mediation, a clear signal for Ms. Harris to dismiss the case when she refused to budge the court upheld the conviction on that technicality. Mr. Gage is still in prison, serving a 70-year sentence. This case is not an outlier. Ms. Harris also fought to keep Daniel Larson in prison on a 28-year-to-life sentence for possession of a concealed weapon, even though his trial lawyer, trial lawyer was incompetent and there was a compelling evidence of his innocence. Relying on a technicality, again, Ms. Harris argued that Mr. Larson failed to raise his legal arguments in a timely fashion. This time, she lost. But uh, needless to say, Kamala Harris, her record as a prosecutor, uh, is not exactly a friend to the downtrodden, is not exactly a friend to those un un unduly and wrongly convicted, is not exactly, uh, you know, somebody who, when she realized she's wrong, acknowledges she's wrong and does the right thing. And one thing I, I see throughout her whole process is thinking of the next step. Re California attorney thinking about running for attorney general, attorney general thinking about running for California Senate gets into, get, uh, excuse me, thinking about running for the United States Senate, United States Senator within six months meeting with Hillary Clinton's donors in the Hamptons thinking about running for president. Now, to be fair, that's not a Kamala Harris thing. That's most politicians, male and female. They're not thinking about serving in their actual job and helping the people. They're politically calculating their next steps.
Because at the root, most politicians are in it for themselves. At the root, most politicians are inherently selfish. Most politicians are inherently insecure. And most politicians are very, very disconnected from the very people that they serve. Their issues, their problems, their struggle. It's truly, truly troubling. It's truly, truly troubling that Kamala Harris is running, you know, justice for all, uh, democracy, equality, and going against uh, Trump and his racist ways. Well, she did a lot of things that didn't exactly help people of color. She did a lot of things that didn't help people where there was evidence to suggest they were wrongly convicted. And what's troubling to me is it doesn't seem like she goes with with policies and things based on her courage of her moral convictions. It seems like she goes on things based on the political wins. We have had enough of that in office. You know, when asked about legalizing marijuana, which single-handedly has is the most racist uh, policy, the criminalization of marijuana, who has that disproportionately harmed? Who has that disproportionately harmed? African-Americans. So she laughs it off, the thought of legalizing marijuana, yet now she's for it? Yeah, you could talk about political evolution and all of these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like she has an actual political moral compass. It seems like she's another one that kind of goes where the wind goes. And we don't need any more of that. So your thoughts, let me know in the super chat. You, you feeling you feel the Harris? You voting for Kamala Harris 2020? I mean, I'm open to hearing more specifics from her, but if, if her main thing is tax credits for middle-class families, if her main thing is, you know, going around the edges, uh, I don't want no part of that. I don't want no part of that. Uh, I think Trump's awful, but what's more awful is putting forward another substanceless, devoid of actual policy, uh, basically concoction from the donors. Because most of these candidates are basically put together by the donors. They're told what to say. Their, their, their campaign messaging is from donors and cons consultants, and they are packaged. They are packaged. It's basically a marketing and branding campaign with not much under the hood. So that's what I think of Kamala Harris. I think uh, it's great that a woman of color is running. I have no problem with that. She has the right to run. Uh, she has a right to be heard. Uh, but I have a right as a journalist to call her out uh, on the things that are inconsistent, the things that are hypocritical, and the things that are fraudulent. And there's a lot of things that don't seem authentic, that don't seem genuine. We'll see what she says at her uh, kickoff rally uh, in Oakland. We'll see if there's actual policy there. We'll see on Medicare for All. What is the specifics? Is it Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan? Or do you have something different? How quickly would you try and get me Medicare for All uh, inserted? Would it be just health care? Or would it be dental? Would it be mental health and all those things? I want to know the specifics. I want to know the specifics. So this kind of goes with the theme of Kamala Harris offering a whole lot of hot air. So, you know, right now is the Davos forum with the, the the world's uber wealthy. Uh, they're meeting in the Alps right now. 
it, it, it makes my stomach turn. The global elite are getting ready to gather in the Swiss Alps for the World Economic Forum. And while the backdrop may be one of deepening gloom over the global economic and political outlook, a new analysis reveals that for at least some of the attendees, the outlook is sunnier than ever. Released by Bloomberg just ahead of the gathering in Davos, it shows how the net worth of some of the, quote, gold-collar executives that will be attending have surged into 10 years since the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon, who should be in jail, by the way, for example, now holds $1.5 billion, a threefold increase over the decade since the financial crash. Stephen Schwartzman, co-founder and CEO of private equity giant Blackstone, meanwhile, saw his wealth surge sixfold, as his net worth is now $12.3 billion. Rupert Murdoch's wealth similarly went up nearly sixfold, with his fortune now at $18.3 billion. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, for his part, is now worth $6.5 billion, a more than ninefold increase. But the reporting notes, while the economic elite are enjoying a bigger slice of the pie, for regular Americans, quote, wages have stagnated, and while equity markets have risen, fewer U.S. adults are invested in the stock market than in 2009. Yeah, let's go invest in the stock market with our $5 extra a month. The data illustrates the ever-widening gap between the true haves, those in the 0.1%, and the have-nots of the global economy. To further illustrate the divide, the reporting also points to a study released last year by the Economic Policy Institute, which found that in 2017, the CEO-to-worker compensation ratio was 312 to 1. No, no, that's not a typo. 312 to 1. So a corporate CEO makes 312 times you. With wages for working people barely budging, it's remarkable to see top CEO pay surging again, reports co-author Lauren Mitchell said at the time. It's difficult to believe that Congress passed a tax cut weighed so heavily towards the wealthy when the nation's top CEOs are clearly doing fine. By the way, they're not exploding just because of the tax cut. Their policies were ju- the policies under Obama was just dandy for these global plutocrats. The Davos confab has always been vulnerable to snark. Hedge fund billionaires flying into Davos in fuel-guzzling private jets to discuss the, to discuss the threat of climate change. Millionaire CEOs discussing inequality while downing cocktails. Endless conversations between people who describe themselves as thought leaders. So let's go into the specifics here. As you can see, this is from 2009, global financial crash, to 2019. Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase, in 2009, worth, looks like $400,000 there. Now, $1.5 billion. $400,000, $1.5 billion in a decade. Bill Gates, who, contrary to uh, the popular myth out there uh, that he's wonderful, actually owns a lot of toxic uh, waste management companies that have landfills leaking out contamination like uranium which I covered at the Young Turks. He owns a waste management company in St. Louis that is leaking out uh, uranium and other toxic uh, contaminants that cause in that community, children have to go out in this St. Louis community with masks because it smells so bad. Bill Gates owns that company. In 2009, 50.8 million, excuse me, 50.8 billion, now 
$94.5 billion. That's quite a raise if you can get it. Rupert Murdoch, who's always kind of been a sleazeball and awful, $3.2 billion in 2009, $18.3 billion now. Stephen Schwartzman uh, gave a lot of money to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, $2.1 billion, now $12.3 billion. Wow, looks like George Soros went down a little bit. So what's what's going on, George? $18 billion, $7 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, wow. Talk about Facebook these days. $3 billion in 2009, $58.6 billion now. So it's a pretty good life if you could pay off the government, huh? It's a pretty, pretty, pretty good life if you could pay out the government. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against people making money. If you work hard, if you're creative, if you're persistent, you should be entitled to, to the fruits of your labor. If you have a cutting-edge idea or you offer something that nobody else does, you should be able to make money. However, I do have something, I do have a problem when plutocrats buy off politicians to legislate favorably to those plutocrats. I do have a problem with that. And every single one of these plutocrats do just that. Yes, Jeff Bezos is going to lose a little money. Seems like he has had a little affair. And now his wife is taking him to the cleaners. They're getting a divorce. I mean, I, I think there should be... I think I have a problem with people making like endless amounts of money. At some point, when is enough enough? But I don't have a problem with the very concept of hard work producing money. I have a problem with people, the system being rigged for certain people to do exceptionally well, like Donald Trump, for example, I do have a problem that when people do well, they could then buy off their politicians to make them even more money. That is not a democracy. That is a crony corporate corporate coup d'etat. That is a crony corporate coup d'etat. And that is a basically a legalized bribery system, which is what we have. That's why it's actually important that we have actual independent media in this country to actually talk about these things, to actually educate more people so that they know, oh, you know what? Maybe it's not so. Maybe it's not normal that I haven't gotten a raise in 10 years. Maybe it's not normal that I have to work two or three jobs just to afford this shitty apartment. Maybe it's not normal that I have $350,000 in student loans while people are, are taking private jets to Davos. Maybe that's not a healthy economy. Maybe that's not a just economy. 